for bodies in motion, love's mysteries in souls do grow, but yet the body is his book, John Don. Everybody has a story to tell, so does every body. And the story told by the human body is rated triple X. Like any narrative of prehistory, ours rests on two types of evidence, circumstantial and material. We've already covered a good bit of the circumstantial evidence. As for more tangible material evidence, the song says, what goes up must come down. But unfortunately for archaeologists and those of us who rely on their findings, what goes down rarely comes back up. And even when it does, ancient social behavior is hard to see reflected in bits of bone, flint, and pottery, fragments that represent only a fraction of what once was existed. At a conference not long ago, the subject of our research came up over breakfast. Upon hearing what we, that we were investigating human sexual behavior in prehistory, the professor sitting across the table from us scoffed and asked rhetorically, quote, so what do you do? Close your eyes and dream, unquote. While one should never scoff with a mouthful of scone, he had a point. As social behavior presumably doesn't have physical artifacts, any theorizing must amount to little but quote-unquote dreaming. Paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould was one early scoffer at the notion of evolutionary psychology, asking, how can we possibly know in detail what small bands of hunter-gatherers did in Africa two million years ago? Richard Potts, director of the Smithsonian's Human Origins Program, agrees, warning, Quote, many characteristics of early human behavior are difficult to reconstruct as no appropriate material evidence is available. Mating patterns and language are obvious examples. They leave no traces in the fossil record. Unquote. But he then, then asks, adds, as if under his breath, Questions of social life may be accessible from studies of ancient environments or from certain aspects of anatomy and behavior that leave material evidence. Unquote. Certain aspects of anatomy and behavior that leave material evidence. Can we glean reliable information about the contours of ancient social life 
even sexual behavior from present-day human anatomy? Yes, we can. Chapter 15 Little Big Man Every creature's body tells a detailed story about the environment in which its ancestors evolved. Its fur, fat, and feathers suggest temperatures of ancient environments. Its teeth and digestive system contain information about primordial diet. Its eyes, its legs, feet, show how its ancestors got around. The relative sizes of males and females and the particulars of their genitalia say a lot about reproduction. In fact, male sexual ornaments, such as peacocks, tails or lion's manes, and genitals offer the best way to differentiate between closely related species. Evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Miller goes so far as to say that evolutionary innovation seems focused on the details of penis shape. Leaving aside for the moment the disturbingly Freudian notion that even Mother Nature is obsessed with the penis, our bodies certainly contain a wealth of information about the sexual behavior of our species over the millennia. There are clues encoded in skeletal remains millions of years old and pulsing in our own living bodies. It's all right there and here. Rather than closing our eyes and dreaming, let's open them and learn to read the hieroglyphics of the sexual body. We begin with body size dimorphism. This technical sounding term simply refers to the average difference in size between adult males and females in a given species. Among apes, for example, male gorillas and orangutans average about twice the size of females, while male chimps, bonobos, and humans are from 10 to 20% bigger and heavier than females. Male and female gibbons are of equal stature. Among mammals, generally and particularly among primates, body size dimorphism is correlated with male competition over mating. In winner-take-all mating systems where males compete with each other over infrequent mating opportunities, the larger, stronger males tend to win and take all. The biggest, baddest gorillas, for example, will pass genes for bigness and badness into the next generation, thus leading to ever bigger, badder male gorillas, until the increased size eventually runs into another factor limiting this growth. On the other hand, in species with little struggle over females, there is less biological imperative for the males to evolve larger, stronger bodies, so they generally don't. That's why the sexually monogamous gibbons 
are virtually identical in size. Looking at our modest body size dimorphism, it's a good bet that males haven't been fighting much over females in the past few million years. As mentioned above, men's bodies are from 10 to 20% bigger and heavier than women's on average, a ratio that appears to have held steady for at least several million years. Owen Lovejoy has long argued that this ratio is evidence of the ancient origins of monogamy. In an article he published in Science in 1981, Lovejoy argued that both the accelerated brain development of our ancestors and their use of tools resulted from an, quote, already established hominid character system that featured intensified parenting and social relationships, monogamous pair bonding, specialized sexual reproductive behavior, and bipedality, unquote. Thus, Lovejoy argued, the nuclear family and human sexual behavior may have their ultimate origin long before the dawn of the Pleistocene. In fact, he concluded with the, a flourish, the unique sexual and reproductive behavior of man may be the sign qua non of human origin. Unquote. Almost three decades later, Lovejoy is still pushing the same argument as this book goes to press. He argues again in science that Ardipithecus ramidus, fragmentary skeletal and dental remains dated to 4.4 million years ago, reinforce this view of pair bonding as the defining human characteristic, predating even our uniquely large neocortex. Like many theorists, Matt Ridley agrees with this ancient origin of monogamy, writing, quote, Long pair bonds shackled each ape man to its mate for much of its reproductive life, unquote. Four million years is an awful lot of monogamy. Shouldn't these quote-unquote shackles be more comfortable by now? Without access to the skeletal data on body size dimorphism we have today, Darwin speculated that early humans may have lived in a harem-based system. But we now know that if Darwin's conjecture were correct, contemporary men would be twice the size of women on average. And as we'll discuss in the next section, another sure sign of a gorilla-like human past would be an embarrassing case of genital shrinkage. Still, some continue to insist that humans are naturally polygynous harem builders, despite the paucity of evidence supporting this argument. For example, Alan S. Miller and Satoshi Kanazawa claim that, quote, we know that humans have been polygynous throughout most of history because men are taller than women, unquote. These authors go on to conclude that because human males are 10% taller and 20% heavier than females, this suggests that throughout history, humans have been mildly polygynous, unquote.
their analysis ignores the fact that the cultural conditions necessary for some males to accumulate sufficient political power and wealth to support multiple wives and their children simply did not exist before agriculture and males being moderately taller and heavier than females indicates reduced competition among males, but not necessarily mild polygyny. After all, those promiscuous cousins of ours, chimps and bonobos, reflect precisely the same range of male-female size difference, while shamelessly enjoying uncounted sexual encounters with as many partners as they can drum up. No one claims the 20-10-20% body size dimorphism seen in chimps and bonobos is evidence of mild polygyny. The assertion that the same physical evidence cor correlates to promiscuity in chimps and bonobos but indicates mild polygyny or monogamy in humans shows just how shaky the standard model really is. For various reasons, prehistoric harems were unlikely for our species. The famed sexual appetites of Ismail and the bloodthirsty, Genghis Khan, Brigham Young, and Will Chamberlain notwithstanding, our bodies argue strongly against it. Harems result from the common male hunger for sexual variety and the post-agricultural concentration of power in the hands of a few men combined with low levels of female autonomy, typical of agricultural societies. Harems are a feature of militaristic, rigidly hierarchical agricultural and pastoral cultures oriented toward rapid population growth, territorial expansion, and accumulation of wealth. Captive harems have never been reported in any immediate return foraging society. While our species' shift to moderate body size, dimorphism strongly suggests that males found an alternative to fighting over mating opportunities millions of years ago. It doesn't tell us what that alternative was. Many theorists have interpreted the shift as confirmation of a transition from polygyny to monogamy, but that conclusion Inclusion requires us to ignore multi-male, multi-female mating as an option for our ancestors. Yes, a one-man, one-woman system reduces competition among males as a pool of available females isn't being dominated by just a few men, leaving more women available for less desired men. But a mating system in which both males and females typically have multiple sexual relationships Running in parallel reduces male mating competition just as effectively if not more so. And given that both of the species closest to us practice multi-male, multi-female mating, this seems by far the more likely scenario. Why are scientists so reluctant to consider the implications of our two closest primate relatives displaying the same levels of body size dimorphism we do? Could it be because neither is remotely monogamous? The only two acceptable interpretations of this shift in body size dimorphism appear to be, one, it indicates the origins of our nuclear family slash 
sexually monogamous mating system, then why aren't men and women the same size, like gibbons? Number two, it shows that humans are naturally polygynous, but have learned to control the impulse with mixed success. Then, why aren't men twice the size of women, like gorillas? Note the assumption shared by both these interpretations, female sexual reticence. In both scenarios, female quote-unquote honor is intact. In the second interpretation, only the male's natural fidelity is in doubt. When the three most closed, closely related apes exhibit the same degree of body size dimorphism, shouldn't we at least consider the possibility that their bodies reflect the same adaptations before we reach for far-fetched, if emotionally reassuring, conclusions? It's time to go below the belt. Below the belt.